Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crypt, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, August 26, 2013. On this day in history, in 1920, the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing women the right to vote, was adopted into the U.S. Constitution. Hi, I'm Kristen Cassidy, and I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska. And I'm Brian Payne. I'm a native to St. Louis, Missouri. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? Good. You two are a couple. At least I think you're a couple. We are. We are, yeah. <laughs> because a big reason I'm into this story, because I believed I saw in the video that you were a couple, so I fell for the whole romantic bit. We both have opposite skills in every way that complements each other. And uh, we found a way to let them work with each other. And we've both been really into exploring for our entire lives. We've always had our heads down on the ground, kind of looking for an opportunity. Which to other people seemed like we had our head in the clouds because we would constantly be looking at things that didn't really matter to the average person. Like we would um, spend time admiring the beauty in small things. And I thought that I was just weird for most of my life. <laughs> so the basic way that this particular project happened or how we figured out this niche was, I came to St. Louis from Los Angeles to work on a story about the Mississippi River. And uh, Kristen visited me for 10 days at the very beginning of that trip. Went back to Los Angeles and decided that she wanted to live here. So we left all of our possessions in Los Angeles and moved here on a whim, totally unprepared. So we came here with nothing and gave away all of our stuff. We left it in the alleys and we left it on the lawn. And so that was then how we acquired our items. You know, that's kind of a predictable Kickstarter story. People who throw away what they have because they have a dream of something else and then they go after that. When we left the things that we had, we understood that we didn't want to waste those things that we wanted to pass them off because we aren't trying to create waste in the world. Right. When we came here, we had that same understanding and were able to pick up the things from other people that were considered waste. You guys are weird, <laughs> but in a good way. It's a good thing you guys have stuck together. You moved across the country and you gave away your stuff. I call that weird, man, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's total Kickstarter community. It looks like you guys actually belong in the community then. Yeah, you guys could actually find a future here. We were doing this all on our own, and then the more that we were doing it, the more people were pushing us into, I think, this world. And now that we've been in this world for, I guess, about two weeks, we had no idea the extent that the network of growing individuals that are building these things from nothing is becoming and it's really exciting to be able to jump in and it's something that we both certainly want to continue to be a part of, not just as creators but as collaborators and supporters now that we see it. We are talking about Kickstarter, right? Kickstarter. Yeah. Okay, just checking, just checking. It <laughs> felt like we were talking about some weird fraternity or sorority <laughs> or something like that. But okay, I got you. Your project is strange to me but curious. You call it a living gallery, and it's on Kickstarter right now. And I wasn't exactly sure of the story. I believe I saw in the video that you talked about your lease was up, or you have to move, or do you have to move, or is the money for you moving, or what is the project? 
Well, we spent the last two years creating an installation art project in our home. We didn't really try to do it. It just sort of happened and we couldn't stop because we were so inspired and we didn't have any plans of stopping. We had almost completed our project and we were we already had plans for its continuation into something else when our landlord told us that we weren't allowed to renew our lease because he wanted to move into our unit. I guess what I'm trying to find out, you'll use the Kickstarter to fund your gallery to stay where you actually are right now? No, <laughs> no. We, we're still gonna have to move. Our gallery is gonna be the actually the day after our Kickstarter ends. It's August 31st and September 1st. So that's gonna be a two day open house that we're trying to massively publicize so the entire city of St. Louis can see this alternative lifestyle, this way to live, this royal, this rich, this fulfilled lifestyle where you have everything that you need without buying new, with only looking in the places that things are discarded and that you can repurpose things in a way that is seamless. What we're using our Kickstarter money for is to make it as professional as possible so that people, for one, it is a showcase of what we're capable of. We can take on the responsibility of a $4,500 production, as well as we want the city of St. Louis, who I think generally is skeptical if they see the whole orchestration of the entire event with gallery programs, with advertising in our local paper, with professionally done flyers, all of these elements that display that completion. I believe that takes an awful lot of time. You guys must be dedicating your whole lives to this. The way we did it in the first year, uh, we both worked pretty heavily collecting objects and then curating those objects and then carving away at the objects that didn't work. So that way we were left with only the things that really stood out as majestic, each one possessing their own life on their own. And then the second year, we had exhausted all of our assets to do what we were doing. And so I took a full-time job at a high school where I've been working for the past year well, just to hold the project up while Kristen worked managing the project all day. And then I would come home and I would put an additional nine hours in. We've both been working about, about 18 hour days, 20 hour days, almost now for a year to be able to give the attention that each item needs. Because in order to bring an item back to life like that, so much of them need precision cleaning, precision placement, handwork to uh, alter it in some way to give that upcycle approach. And each item needs a different attention, a different purpose. So that way some items are displayed one way and some are another way, but we have to let the item, the object define it for us. And so, yeah, we have completely dedicated our lives. It has certainly become a blessing that we have to move out because otherwise we would have just been caught trying to maintain this and build a momentum. And we had no idea how long we would have to do that for. And now that this is an opportunity for us to showcase what we've done and now escalate it, take it somewhere else to where I don't have to do something I don't want to do just to be able to maintain this level. Now we need to spread the word as quickly as possible because we think that we've defined it in a way that's really appealing to just even the most basic viewer. For anyone out there on Kickstarter or for anyone out there who's listening to this podcast, uh, it's the Living Gallery. They're on 
Kickstarter. If you can't find them there, go to djgrandpa.com. And i just like to say thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So I'm Justin Morvitz. Um, I'm the artist and musician and designer of the game Proton Pulse Rift. My name is Max Moreau, and I'm the technical lead on Proton Pulse. How's it going, dudes? It's going good. You guys look a lot like the video, man. <laughs> In the flesh. That's shocking, man. That's shocking. I'm thinking makeup, camera, lighting, and all of that. You guys would look like totally different. Can't afford that, unfortunately. No, I got you. Maybe we shouldn't get into that then, okay? <laughs> Might be a little too personal. He says this while there's like a stage lamp set up here. Believe it or not, we're not using it, but it's there. <laughs> I just want to welcome you two gentlemen to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. How are you guys doing on Kickstarter? Generally speaking, it's been a new experience. This is the first time I've uh, ever done anything on Kickstarter, so I didn't really understand how much work it would be. Yeah, everybody says that. Yeah. <laughs> Kickstarter is a full-time job. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah. Community <laughs> management in general is a full-time job, but yeah, Kickstarter definitely gets the name out there. and The virtual reality world. You know, I've seen it on television for like the last 20 years or so, but I've never experienced it in real life. So are you guys saying it's actually real? It's not just TV magic? I think it's time. They promised it back in the 90s, and it never really, really happened. So Oculus Rift came around through a Kickstarter of their own, and they, they totally delivered. They managed to get something that was cheap and worked. When you put that sucker on, you're actually in a different world. The amount of immersion and perspective is absolute. I've gone through several headsets, and this was the first one that you know actually works. These guys make fun of me all the time. I, like, I, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help but crack a smile because when he says he's gone through headsets, he has gone through a lot of them. So, <laughs> and that's amazing that you said Oculus Rift was um, a Kickstarter of itself. So that's, I mean, that's cool, man. And you guys coming up, I guess, with the next generation of game to support it. Am, am I right? Yes, absolutely. In our particular game. There's no keyboard, no mouse. You just put it on. You look around where you want the paddle to move. And it's it's interesting because one of the bugs I'm having in the game right now is the computer will fall asleep because there's no keyboard or mouse input. And oh, so you got yeah. to nudge it every now and then or set your settings before time. But it's definitely an emerging technology that's really taking off right now. And so I'm pretty excited. Now, how did you guys get in? I mean, why is it the both of you and not two other guys or something? It's a really interesting question, actually. It's like an insult, but it's not. I give twisted compliments, so it's just kind of half insult, half... Actually, no, that's a good question. You got me stumped there a bit, because honestly, we've had a, a huge history in the video game industry. We've been here for about nine years in the professional world, and we like doing our own thing. VR hasn't really taken off with Sony, Microsoft, or anything like that yet, so we decided to make a project on our own. Honestly, to answer the question of why us, it's honestly... Because uh, Justin here has so much of an interest in the medium, we got lucky on timing on a couple of things. We had made Proton Pulse originally as a standalone app for iPad. It didn't make any big splash. The sales figures are quite frankly laughable, but the game has a lot of heart in it. And we put a lot of ourselves in it and it was kind of our style of VR generation stuff in the tablet form. 
And Justin, as soon as he found out about the Oculus, he's like, oh, we got to get this working on the Oculus. This will be so fun. This will be so awesome. And, and I was like, yeah, but it's, it, it should be pretty cool. Like, I don't know. It'll be nice to have the depth and stuff, but it, it really is great. And like, it was one of those things where, where everything just kind of fell in like dominoes, where right. Justin just threw the, the Oculus files into our Unity project and he got it all working and got it all figured out. And he just tried putting the head tracking in there and it just felt great. It felt natural to just look exactly where you think the ball's going to go and you can block it. And it ends up being a really fun game, a better product than it was even before, just because it's, it's a better platform for it. I'm afraid of virtual reality and I mean it like this. I'm not the fastest guy in the world, you know, I'm kind of slow. And so I'm thinking virtual reality might just freak me out a little bit. Is it like a sensation like that or is it just something totally natural that the body can deal with? With the Oculus, they spent all of their effort on the head tracking and the eyes. So when you put it on, it's very, very natural. It's, 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 it's kind of creepy, honestly, because when you take it off, it's very jarring. You're just suddenly back. Right. When you walk around with an Oculus in another game where you can just go up to a wall or a lamp or whatever, it literally feels like it's right in front of you. I, my first experience was there was these little floaty things in the air and one came right at me and I, I instinctively closed my mouth because I didn't want it to go in there and I thought that was incredible because it wasn't really there. One of the other issues VR has been getting and a lot of developers now are having to deal with is motion sickness. When you force the player to move when they don't want to, your body reacts to that. And so we've taken huge steps in our game to make sure that you're in a fixed point and everything moves around you. So I'm almost kind of right in my fear a little bit, you know, I mean, until technology catches up or something. Well, there's always a technology catching up. And honestly, this is kind of the point where technology is starting to really catch up in the VR scene. As you said yourself, it's been 20 years that they've been promising this stuff. And it hasn't been really till now that the technology has kind of been able to catch up to it. And there's an, and Kickstarter allowed Oculus to see that there was actually a real audience out there for VR and enthusiasts. And I think that as the enthusiasts come in, we'll see more of a general adoption rate afterwards. The other thing I wanted to say is a lot of these problems are new to any technological medium. I mean, I mean, when, when TV was first invented, people had motion sickness problems with that. It wasn't considered natural to see another place in your living room. And now we're right now talking through some magical internet thing to each other using video conferencing that we set up in about five seconds on a card table here. And so, yeah, we got to start looking to the future and VR is it. <laughs> man, you're very logical, man. That's what you're for. <laughs> no, 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 not to put you down either. It's just. He's the mastermind behind the project, honestly. That's the thing. Like, Justin has done so much. It is just amazing. I, I basically just set up a little framework for the initial game and he just took it and ran. And it's awesome. Should we talk about the actual game? Should you tell me, yeah. you know? Proton Pulse Rift is a breakout experience. So you're breaking bricks with a ball in a three-dimensional um, world. You are the paddle, you look around, and wherever the ball is about to go, you just look in that direction and deflect it. There are power-ups like lasers, there are boss fights, there's five of them currently, over 50 levels. We're hoping to get multiplayer in there real soon, and it's just crazy the amount of feedback we've gotten from this game. It's just all positive. So it was a project I originally made for myself, and I released a small demo a few months ago. I came back like a month after that and found that it had exploded on the internet. So I'm like, well, I, I better finish that because otherwise these people will be somewhat upset. So 
it's just been a great experience. I've been able to talk to amazing people over Oculus VR themselves and some people throughout the industry that I never thought I'd get in contact with. And it's really opened up a lot of opportunities. So it's one of those things is you make a game. I didn't really take other people into consideration. It was just an experience I wanted to have in my uh, game room. And uh, more and more people are just adopting the uh, gameplay style and such. So wow. it's everybody's project at this point. If anybody out there, let's make sure I get it right here, the Proton Pulse Rift. And it's a virtual reality game. And that's amazing to me because it's kind of like 20 years I've been promised this sort of technology. And now these two guys, out of nowhere, somehow delivering it for me. So go to Kickstarter, check them out, Proton Pulse Rift. And you, if you can't find it there, if you get lost, for any reason, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll graciously provide links. No, we'll shamelessly promote these two. That's what this title of this episode is called, Shameless Self-Promoters. You two are just inspiring, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. It's an honor. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. threatening woman here to talk to you about Hooch. Hooch is a fast-paced card game set in the wild go-go times of gangsters, flappers, and illegal dens of iniquity. Take on your rivals, set up your stills, bribe judges, and do whatever it takes to amass the fortune you need to take over the town. Jason, dude, I want to welcome you to DJ Grandpa's crib, man. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I know it says on Kickstarter that you're from Goodyear, Arizona, but where are you right now? Because I, I heard you, you're doing an on-location spot for us. Where are you? We came up to Gen Con to help push our game, and we're sitting in Indianapolis right now in the convention center on the floor. And Gen Con is what? Gen Con is probably the largest board game tabletop gaming convention in the world, uh, definitely America. Once a year, people descend upon Indianapolis, and this is it. You call it what you will, a board game fest, geek fest. Everything that is that is here, and all the major players are represented. Uh, you'll have any kind of card game, dice game, board game, anything that fits in that realm, it's here. Miniatures as well. We're actually testing our game here in the first exhibit test hall. I think your game is way cool, man, and I love the name Hooch. It just sounds like it's worth money or it's trouble somehow. It's uh, funny how that came about, and it, we were actually talking about another game at the time, and that all of a sudden the word hooch came up, and um, we just kind of made some jokes and puns about it. We were talking about calling it something different and it had a different flavor, and that came out. And then for like the next week, I would call my business partner on the phone, and I would yell, hooch, and then I'd hang up. So <laughs> he called me back a couple days later, and he's like, that would make a good game name. I was like, okay. So we kind of sat on it for a little while. And then, I don't know, maybe a week later, he called me, and he says, it's the 1920s. You're a gangster. The dawn is dead. you got to take over the city. Called Hooch. Run your illegal alcohol. Go. And from there, we just started uh, working on the game. It was that easy? It was. It just kind of fell into place. And then after that, everything else just kind of took shape. We started working on the art, and we started working on the mechanics. And my business partner, Kyle Olson, he was very adamant about the um, 1920s and the prohibition, and he felt real strongly about that and what it meant to him. 
that history, time, and place in America. So we really focused down on that and started getting into the flavor of to be a gangster in the 1920s. Man, your partner is a genius. You can just yell for a week in the phone, a subliminal type of thing, and hang up on him. And then he comes up with this brainstorm like that all on his own? That's why I'm partnered with him. <laughs> That's genius by association. Yes, genius by association. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. I mean, your video is very cool. The characters in it and stuff, the Bugsy Malones and all of that ishness of your video. And you got that like female customer service lady at the end, and she's hilarious. My partner wrote the script, and then because of our theater connections in Phoenix, I've been doing theater there for about 25 years, so I know a lot of people, and I get a lot of work as a designer and things like that. So we just kind of put our feelers out and said, hey, we're filming this thing for our game, and we really like to get some folks in. So all the young faces you see in that, they're all from that, and the gal at the end, her name is Natalie Cottrell. I called her up, and we had worked with her before, and Kyle said, hey, get Natalie. She's awesome. So we did. I want you to tell me about this game, Hooch. Like, what makes it exciting? I know prohibition is always exciting. Alcohol can be always exciting, even though it's a drug. So just tell me about the game, man, because I love the video. It's actually pretty simple. You just run a, a syndicate. So we have the base syndicates in the game, the big sixers, the um, palookas, the blind tigers, so we have these factions that are vying for power in the city, and there are storefronts laid out on the table that represent uh, the different businesses you can own within that city. And you buy and bribe politicians and judges and detectives, and you spin yourself a web, so to speak, of public officials that you put on a payroll that you own. And then you have your own characters from within your criminal syndicate that um, you promote onto your payroll, like uh, a capo and a madam and a smuggler, and you use these people on your payroll to then control your storefronts and obtain hooch. And when you own that storefront, you're able to flux that hooch into your syndicate, and then you use it to buy you know, hoods and wise guys and bosses that come in and uh, they protect your guys, your payroll people, and they protect your storefront. You go to war against other, we call them syndicates, but basically they're like rival gangs, crime families. It's cutting for you, Jimmy. Now, what do you know? You don't know nothing about nothing. You know more than you think, Mick. Tell him, Mick. You got it, Mike. Now, here's what we know. Somebody iced the Don, and that set up a power factor. How much is that going to cost? Now, what's we still have um, some slots available at the early bird, we're calling it, and that is $30 of the price point you get in. And that is an awesome price point. You're talking over 500 cards okay. in the base game alone, which is great. And then it goes up from there. So once those 150 are gone, then we went to 35. And then after those 100 are sold, then it will be 40. But it won't ever go above 40. So if you get in now, you can get it for that special price. And then once those are gone, then it would be 40, which is still a great price point. We went all the way down we could go. So we could offer the public the best deal. Well, I'm liking this, man. The 1920s and prohibition and stuff, right? Everything we've done, Kyle and I have uh, brainstormed together and then worked through it together. It's a complete package. You get the gangsters, you get the art, you get the feel, you get the ruggedness of that and the um, grittiness of the gangster life through it as well. 
For anyone out there, go to kickstarter.com and type in Hooch, H-O-O-C-H. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Mark Lampert, and I directed Pocketful of Soul, the harmonica documentary. And I'd like to thank you for checking out our Kickstarter. Mark, welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Okay, I know on Kickstarter you're doing this Pocketful of Soul, this documentary on harmonicas. And I must say that I'm kind of partial to the harmonica. But, I mean, I remember Stevie Wonder Records and Eric Clapton Records. And I remember that guy who played at the Grand Old Opry who made it sound like a train and all that stuff. And I've always loved the harmonica. So, what about you? I've always been aware of it. But uh, I didn't develop a true love for the instrument until I started really digging into the whys and hows and the connections that the artist had. Because I was just coming from a basic rock and roll place growing up. I knew that John Lennon had played it. I knew that Mick Jagger had played it. I knew right. that even Ozzy Osbourne had played it. And I knew that Bob Dylan you know, would make noises with it. And I knew that Neil Young had, had worked it into his sound. But it wasn't something that I was always focused on. I just saw it as something that was kind of accompanying the music that I was already listening to. So I, I've really developed a whole new appreciation for what it does and, and its place in music. I was trying to lead you into saying how much you loved it as a child, but I see you really just really got into it at, during the documentary. So, okay, that's cool. You know, I, I don't want to diminish the relationship that I have with it because it was always around. I mean, my grandparents played it and it was something that was there, but I wouldn't classify myself as a harp fanatic, but I've become a harp enthusiast. Pocketful of Soul actually gets at the heart of where this instrument has come from, where it is at the moment, and where it could potentially go. It gets into all of the various genres that the instrument shows up in, which there is not really a single kind of music that it's it's not employed in at some point or another. I mean, we're dealing with, you know, complete concertos being played on this thing. We're dealing with hard rock. We're dealing with country. We're dealing with blues. We're dealing with jazz. We're dealing with hip-hop. I mean, it, it's in everything. And right. that's one of the things that we're hoping that uh, we can really show through this film is that, you know, you're only really limited by what you think you know about this instrument until you really kind of consider where it can go and, wh and where it is. And you think you're going to be like the definitive doc on this topic? I think at the moment we are. I think we're the only filmmakers who have managed to actually put this kind of story together or this particular story together. I mean, we were told as we headed into making this project that it's a very difficult uh, uphill battle to tell the story right and we had very little encouragement from the beginning. In fact, we had more encouragement to not do it than to actually do it at the beginning. So mm -hmm. I feel that uh, we may have actually, through persistence, been able to put together, yeah, what will be considered, I think, the definitive film up to this point, for sure. Through email conversations going back and forth with your producer, Todd, I believe he said that you had a contest and you have like original music mixed with harmonica classics. What about this contest I'm interested in? Actually, we called it Operation Creation. It was our theme song contest. So we had uh, about 60 original songs 
they were all titled Pocketful of Soul. That was part of the rules. It's like <laughs> your, your song has to be called Pocketful of Soul. Right. It can be about anything that you want it to be, but by the end of it, it needs to have at least a harmonica solo or premiere the instrument through the piece. Right. There was some hip hop, some jazz, some blues, some rock, some old time folk. I mean, it was all over the place and uh, right. we just were stoked with what we got. It turned out to be a great batch of tunes to actually create a really nice bed of music through the film. It sounds pretty cool, but it also sounds like a, a publishing scheme. Everybody has to be named pocket full of soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a publishing scam. We got everyone everyone shares everyone shares credit, everyone shares ownership and uh, they can do whatever they want with their recording. We just get to, you know, use it as well. No, no, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying it sounds like it. It just felt <laughs> funny to say that's all. Yeah, I, I see your point. That's yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, I'm not trying to accuse you. I don't even know anything. I'm not trying to accuse you. That would be slander. <laughs> <laughs> not a word. No worries, no worries. Okay. All right, now, what about the classics? I heard you used a few classics. How'd you get those? You know, we had to buy the rights to use them. You know, we're using songs by Little Walter. We're using songs by Howlin' Wolf. We're using songs by Sonny Boy Williamson uh, too, Rice Miller. Um, we're using uh, songs by Paul Butterfield. We're using wow. songs by uh, uh, so many people. I mean, you know, we, we, we just had to uh, really kind of cover our bases. And since we, you know, like I said, had decided to go and call this thing the definitive piece on the harmonica, we couldn't very well make a film without representing some of the, the greatest songs. And so uh, we thought with that, uh, you know, if we could raise the budget to where we could get some of these tracks and actually use them to help tell the story that uh, we thought it was worth it. Now, let's get down to business. Bring it on. It's always Kickstarter business. Haha, <laughs> it is business, isn't it? Yes, it is. What's it like being on the platform? Whew, you know, it's a little stressful. You know, we're just hoping that people uh, respond. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're not asking for, you know, major amounts of money. And we're not asking for people to come in and help us make the film. We're asking people to help us finish the film, which means get it out to them. Because after all, we're making a piece about something that we feel is very representative of the people. And we just want to get this out there and we just can't do it on our own. And uh, we figure that uh, we take it to the masses and see if they'd, uh, they'd rally around uh, what we're looking at as kind of a, a musical cause in a way. The harmonica is, is of the people and uh, we just want to get it out there and uh, we need some help. Last question. Mm -hmm. You said you received 60 entries for your contest, Pocket Full of Soul. Yes. All by the same name. Okay, I wish I had a drum roll, but, and the winner is... Pocket Full of Soul by Peter Mad Cat Ruby. I had a pocket full of soul. Now, what really gets me is these harmonica players, they got some of the wildest names in the world. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's probably uh, something to do with uh, trying to gain a little bit of respect around an instrument that gets very little to begin with. Hmm. That's why you're the director. You get me every time. You get me every time. <laughs> and, and if you're out there on Kickstarter, 
drop by his page. It's called Pocket Full of Soul. It's a documentary. They say it's the definitive voice on the harmonica. So you better drop by, check it out, and decide for yourself. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Mark, tell uh, Todd I said hello. And thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, you got it. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. I got a pocket full of soul. Well, all right. Generation One is the story of Picus, the first child born on Mars. In 2051, when a war between the United States and China plunges two peaceful Martian colonies into a miniature Cold War, it's up to the first generation of children born on Mars to restore peace to their planet and set a positive example for Earth. I just want to say welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. How's everything going for you? Really good. We had a slow couple of days because we had to take our stretch goals down and refigure a bunch of stuff, but they are back up as of five minutes ago. Why'd you have to take your stretch goals down? Why'd you screw up? (laughs) You know, I think everybody has this sort of fear that their, their baby is only cute to them. And so when we put the page up, we'd been really careful with our stretch goals lower down, but as we got higher up, we're like, well, if this gets crazy, I mean, what do we want to do? And then it was starting to look like, oh, man, this could actually get that crazy. And then we started crunching more numbers. We're like, we need to take this down and really rethink this so that we don't make promises we can't keep. And, uh, yeah, we we worked it out and simplified. And I'm really super happy with it. All right. Now, where where are you you out of, man? Let's get all the details down. We're here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. It's a little town, probably 35,000. Yeah, I've, I've got a wife and two kids and... Family man. Wow. Yeah, so... I have two lives, one as a writer and one as a as a family man, and, and each of my lives have no respect for oh. each other. Uh-oh. Riding the <laughs> Dangerfield territory. You know, you can't explain to your kids that, you know, hey, uh, Daddy Bear needs to write right now because he's, yeah, they call me Daddy Bear. Sorry, man, I'm not calling you that, but go ahead. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> and uh, all of our team members are either married or, you know, well, married and working, and right. that's one of the craziest parts about this is just, you know, finding the time to do everything, especially our artists. That dude's crazy. Generation One, Children of Mars. You know, I really like the premise of the story. I don't know. I can't say original, but it felt like there was some sort of originality in the way that you told it. You know, I, I really felt this story. And, and with the segue between the different members of the of your group and the story, that's what drew me to you, and, and that's why I wanted to talk to you guys on the show about Generation One, Children of Mars. 
I thought it was very cool, man. So I, I just wanted to say oh, thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. We really wanted to make that distinction between this isn't just sci-fi. You know, this is this is our world. This is, uh, you know, this is near future. This is 2051, and that's going to be here. I want you to tell me about Children of Mars. You know, you were talking about how it's our future and all that you guys put into this. And, and it's real. It's not just a story. You know, a few years ago... I got a hold of uh, a book by a guy named Dr. Robert Zubrin, and uh, he's the president of the Mars Society. And really, if you're in the United States and you're talking about Mars exploration, he's the guy. Right. I read that book and I was just amazed by it and I was inspired and I was like, you know, this is doable. Why are, why are we not doing this? And, uh, you know, not having a background in mathematics, not being a scientist, not being uh, an engineer, you know, I wasn't going to be able to help in any effort to colonize Mars hands-on the way I would want to. And, right. But, you know, I've been writing my entire life. I'm a published short story writer. I've got stories in pro magazines. I've written some blogs for SIFWA, which is Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. So that's what I know how to do. And I thought, like I said, Tim, uh, my brother, our artist, we've been uh, doing stuff together forever. And we, we just decided to that this would be our way of supporting that effort and that then that, that this would be our way of, uh, you know, hopefully inspiring other people to, to get on board and think about Mars exploration. Cause it's, it's possible. The only thing is, you know, we have to believe it's possible and we got to get, you know, companies and, uh, the government to turn on the, the money again. I guess you've been doing some research for this book and, and I haven't, and I have to lean, I have to live vicariously through you. <laughs> Isn't it just too expensive for one government to explore space, to set up a space station, a living colony? Not at all. It's not too expensive at all. And uh, that was one of the things that was really amazing to me about Dr. Zubrin's book was he talked about how achievable this is. You know, there have been some Mars initiatives that have really missed the point and have said, you know, that we need to develop tons of new technologies and do these massive missions and really... Dr. Zubrin was the guy who said, we could do this fairly simply. It'd be, you know, a tenth as expensive. But the trick is that people go to Mars and they live on Mars, that we establish a permanent settlement. And, we, you know, the real difficult part about taking people to Mars is getting them back. So the trick about sending anybody out yeah, yeah. is getting them back. Okay. And as far as money goes, you know, if... I don't have these numbers in front of me right now, but... We're not number crunchers. We're just telling a story right now. So te tell me your version of this reality story. I'm thinking that when I, when I hear your story, I'm thinking that there's, there's no atmosphere on Mars. How are we going to live on there? Do we, do we have to build a whole bubble so that we can live there before we can colonize, before we can, where we can change the atmosphere of a planet? Terraform, where we can terraform. Yeah, terraforming, if it's possible at all, is hundreds and hundreds of years in the future. I mean, that's a that's a crazy effort. What we're talking about is a settlement of, uh, you know, 30 people on Mars. In the story, they're 20 years into the, the mission, and they add right. new colonists every year. And uh, really, I mean, they're living in a network of connected capsules and uh, inflatable houses. We call them long houses that are just basically these big balloons that they blow up, and then they build bricks around them for shielding and other things. Right. And then they have a dome. You can actually make bricks on Mars and you can build with Martian brick. And that's one of the things that we've done is, you know, the trick is just sealing it. And they have a big living area that's a dome. It's not a big glass dome like you might think of. It's actually a brick dome. Oh, okay. So they spend a lot of time indoors. But, I mean, they have 
internet, they have, you know, television, they, you know, there's that big time distance, but, uh, they receive and, uh, send packets of information. And, you know, right. so the kids are, are, you know, pop culture savvy and everything else. It's just, you know, you, you spend a lot of time indoors. And see, that's the point about your Kickstarter, the way that you portrayed everything with your book, you made me feel as though it was exciting. You made me feel as though it was tangible. And I was like, man, I'd like to talk to this cat because I miss that so many times when I watch sci-fi, um, you know, like either graphic novels or comics or something like that, or just trailers on Kickstarter alone. I miss that imagination. I miss that kid thing again of, of watching these movies. And someday when I grow up, I'm going to be there. I appreciate that so much. That's that's really the the feeling we want people to have. And I think a, a big part of that is, yeah, it, it, it's near future. So this is like achievable stuff. And on top of that, you know, we're a huge fan of uh, cartoons like Avatar The Last Airbender that just have... Oh, the movie was way cool. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, uh, but I, I watched the, the series. We just love the series. And uh, there's just such a great sense of humor. And it's like, and character. And you get to know these kids in it. And it makes this world that really, if you just heard about it on paper, just seems so impossible. But through right. these people that you get to know, you then sort of believe the world. And, and that's kind of what we want to do is make these kids unique and, and likable and get the emotion and the character right. And then that sort of makes the world feel possible because, you know, it would be real people up there. It's not going to be, you know, boring space people. It's going to be people with dreams and senses of humor and fears. And, and that's really something that was very important to us as we worked on the story. That's cool. You you told it to me. You sold it to me now. <laughs> you know, it's like now I, I think I could do that. I could go there. No, I'm not, I'm not going there. But no, me it, either. It is cool, the story that you do. Yeah, I'm not a pioneer. <laughs> no, here's, yeah, that's the thing. That's another thing. I tell people all the time. I've had, I've had people ask me talking about this project, would you go? And I'm like, you know, no, because I don't feel like I, I'm – First of all, qualified. I don't have to worry about it. I'm not qualified. I'm not tough enough, dude. Yeah, I would. Go, I would go a little bit crazy, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people who would do it and love it. And and that's another thing that Generation One is, is. It's a celebration of how strong those people are. It's that pioneer spirit that you know that just is in really short supply now on Earth. We sort of feel like we've done everything. Right. It's it's a thing that I call fresh history. Sometimes. Sometimes, even in America, you know, it's like you watch things and you're like, oh, that person's done it. 300 million people, okay, that's done, that's done. Yeah. And then sometimes you watch other countries and they're just, sometimes it seems like they're just living in the moment. And then I was like, now that's fresh history. Yeah. It's like they've never done it before and they're just living in the moment. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and it's just totally cool, man. So, And that's what Generation 1 did for me when I when I watched it, when I checked out your Kickstarter. That's awesome. And I'd like, oh, no problem, man. And I'd like to say for anyone out there, if anyone's listening, we still are very crude on this planet. And we're always on the edge of self-destruction, I believe. But hopefully one day we'll make it to those places like Mars and have colonies and stuff like that. And if you want to imagine such a place right now, Go to Generation 1 on Kickstarter, type it in, and if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com, and, and we'll stay positive enough for all of us. And you'll find links to Generation 1 and, and help yourself. 
I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. The 3D market is booming. Rapid growth in 3D printing, animation, and gaming is driving a demand for high-quality 3D image capture. Consumers and professionals alike are looking for an affordable solution to exploit their Hello, potential. Hello, Steven. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How's it going? Not too bad. And what it does is it takes geometric stereo and photometric stereo and fuses the two sets of data using statistical techniques, and the result is uh, a high-resolution 3D true image with accuracy, and as a, an added bonus, you also get true color. Fuel 3D, a handheld 3D scanner for less than $1,000. What did they cost before, you think, before you put your Kickstarter out? You know, it's the beautiful thing where everybody says, my thing is unique, but there really isn't a product that is comparable to this. Most of the products that existed before the Fuel 3D were just usually variations of the Xbox Connect or something that used some sort of laser field. So there isn't really something that is comparable to this. The closest things that can deliver this level of quality in this ease is something that's at the fifteen to $30,000 price point. And I want to make sure that I have this correct. Before your device, would you have to like sit stationary for, what, 10, 15 minutes? So the, to do so an image capture? Right, to do an image capture. It takes about less than a second. No, I mean before your product. Before your product. Well, it depends. Some of them, they use like the sweeping motion, kind of like the Xbox Connect versions of things. Right. It was just however fast you kind of moved it around. It kind of rendered in, in video speed. But most of them, it took it a while to capture an image. It was not a one snap thing, especially to get something like a face. And yours is a one snap, like a camera, literally. Correct. I mean, are you guys pretty excited to be on Kickstarter? Absolutely. Why? The fact that we've raised a quarter of a million dollars in this amount of time is absolutely mind-blowing. That's true. So, I mean, the response has been overwhelming. Just the enthusiasm that we've seen from people as far as messages, and we've been doing things like attending meetups and, and trying to get out there with the prototype to get something in people's hands so that they can see it's a real thing and that it's not vaporware, essentially. What's vaporware? You spoke of vapor. Oh, just the concept of you know putting a video in there and not actually having an, em an empty box, essentially. A, a con, a sham, a bait and switch with an empty box. Exactly. Oh, I would hate to have those sort of people on this show. I, w I wouldn't want to know about that. Well, it happens out there. So that's one of the things we're trying to do is get it in front of people so that they can see it's a reality because it is so different than everything else that's out there. So your Kickstarter advertises for less than $1,000. Wow. Correct. So with that, a computer and a 3D printer. You can find them on Kickstarter for roughly $1,000. Correct. Like under $3,000, you could have a whole setup, your whole makerware or whatever, your whole hacker space. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the thing that's exciting about this technology is not just that it's a step forward in the technology, but in my mind, it brings something like 3D printing that people know about, but it's kind of on the periphery of society. People don't really understand it. And even if you know someone with a 3D printer, all they can really do is kind of print you little Yoda heads and kind of little knickknack type things. Right. It's a technology that if, if someone has this technology and 
you go to their house, they can take a picture of your face and then print it out immediately. That is amazing. So, I mean, it really makes it a personal technology, almost like what digital cameras did for photography. You don't have to go to a photo lab or understand how to really do a lot of CAD modeling or anything like that to be able to just create something pretty rough and generate it, which is, to me, very exciting. No, 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 that is very exciting. You guys are getting me closer to that holodeck all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can 3D print in food now, so we're, we're just a step away wow. from the transporter, at least. We'll see if we get that transporter in my lifetime, <laughs> but, but I know you guys are working hard at it. Okay, now, do you read the comment section on your Kickstarter page at all? Yeah, we do. But what are the people saying? One of the great things that we found through Kickstarter that we kind of didn't anticipate, but I mean, I guess in hindsight now, it's very easy to see, is how many people have ideas that are better than something we might have come up with at some point right. and how when you get a group of creative people and you give them something creative to start with, they can really take that and kind of run with it. As an example, I, I met someone, actually two people, there were two people that were doing this and they have kind of like a little side business. They play around uh, 3D printing glasses, just eyeglass frames. And so they were interested in using the technology to measure from the bridge of the nose to the ear and all these kinds of things that it's sitting in a room, you'd never think of these kind of utilizations of it, right. but you kind of get it out in the world and, and you see how creative people can be with something. Like if I were a subject or something, how would this scanner work? What, what would you do? What would you have me do? Like, just could you walk me through the process of, of the scanner? So essentially the way it would work, imagine a webcam. So it's just, a, it's a tethered device that has um, a camera in it. Right. And so you would have that hooked up to your computer and your computer would be your viewfinder. And then you would have your subject in front of you. You would place a target. It's a little reference disk um, on the subject. And then you would take the image, and then it would render you your image. Um, so, I mean, it's literally that simple. There's not a lot to it. For anyone out there who, yeah, you're into technology, you like gadgety gadgets, I think this is a gadget that you should check out. It's less than $1,000. $1,000 is still a lot of money, but... But I think it's very cool to check out. So go to kickstarter.com and type in Fuel3D. That's the word fuel, no space, and then the number three, and then D, as in day or digital or something like that. It's a handheld 3D scanner. They're out of Greenville, North Carolina. If you can't find them, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. A few years ago, I was looking for a handbag that I liked, but I just couldn't find one. I had some painted remnants in my studio, and I decided to make my own. I instantly got tons of compliments everywhere I went. A friend suggested I sell them in her local shop, Hello Lucky. The handbags Whitney, come the name in of your company is called Stitched. Limited First, edition handbag collection. You're on Kickstarter. Uh, you're from Houston, Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, I hear. I mean... Of course, everybody says that, but it's still a cool catchphrase. Regardless of truth, it's all about catchy sometimes. What brings you to Kickstarter? Well, to start off with kind of a concept that everything grows out of, I have this really deep belief system that we have everything that we need to have a perfect world right now. We just have to kind of rearrange or change our perspective to see it. And these bags are all handmade, hand-painted, as it says, and it's true, 
it takes a lot of time. A lot of people were naysayers like, well, you're going to have to charge a lot of money to make those and um, they're going to be luxury items or otherwise it's unsustainable. And uh, I'm kind of part of the local, you know, handmade movement with my friend's shop. Right. Hello, Lexi. And so there was this tug and pull there. And there's also this idea that, you know, having something accessible at a price point that's accessible for people was important to me because I didn't want it to be so exclusive that, like, quote-unquote, real world couldn't participate because my whole thing is bringing something real and meaningful into your life. What price point do you call accessible? The smallest little card carrier is $22, and they go up to $278 for the so I still think it's a little bit on the high end, but these things are durable. I think the very first bag I made, I still use it over four years ago. They're durable, and the second phase that I have in place is going to be a place where you can trade in your bags so they never lose value, kind of like the whole similar to cars. You can trade it in or sell it back, and then there'll be a whole branch of loved-in bags that you can buy that'll be a more accessible price as well. Now, you said certain people, certain aspects believe that you wouldn't be able to create a sustainable business model, and you're talking about fair wages. And I'm starting to see that more on Kickstarter, and what I'm trying to say is you're talking about having it done in other countries and paying them fairly. And also here. It just so happened that Indonesia, this particular village, it took me two years to find a sweatshop-free, factory-free community of people. I was on the phone for hours trying to find some way to create a group in the Appalachian region with the the lost people. So this definitely isn't just about being somewhere else in the world. It's about creating sustainable communities throughout the world, and really ultimately making the world safer for all of us is another thing. Like, I have, you know, these very idealistic concepts that I'm trying to construct a very tangible thing. How old are you? How how old am I? Yeah. I am 39. I was like, if you're going to say 22, I'm like, okay, I can see your idealism. But usually by 39, all your idealism has been torn out of you. It's been broken, stomped on. But 39, <laughs> you still have it. Uh. Okay. Yeah, and it's growing stronger by the minute. Yeah, you might be real somehow. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope no, so. I, I don't mean to be mean to you. I'm just, I'm just talking about stereotypes in life. Bring it on. Right, 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 right. Yes, this is a test. That's right. Hey, all handmade, all custom. All handmade, and what was the second part? All custom. All custom. And you said you were on the phone for literally almost two years to find this village, because I was like, how does one find a village where they can build an infrastructure? This is where idealism meets reality, and it makes sense now why there are factories and, and a lot of things that I'm kind of, I'm trying to steer away from. Just because, it, you know, streamlining certain processes is just easier. You know, all these people are in one space, and and there's a, a lot of things that are, are, are virtuous about that. But every time I kind of was like, you know, and people would say, outsourcing, outsourcing, just get it done. People love the product, you know, and you can tell the brand story, and it doesn't matter. And I, I was like, no, nope, it doesn't feel right. And this is about being transparent 
and doing something and offering the world something that there's like no, like zero hidden aspect of something that you have to swallow to get something else. Like an awesome pair of shoes, but you know, maybe some poor kids in a factory made it. You know, like, and I was like, no, that's not what this is about. This is about believing in change. You know, there's capitalism and it's kind of proven that it's a, it's a really good system so far. It's the one that works really well. But there is, you know, the world gets torn feelings about it, like the ugliness and then blame and then there's defensiveness. So whenever I feel something like that, I'm like, okay, just focus on out of that discomfort, out of that thing you don't like to feel, focus on what you want. It's like, well, I want conscientious capitalism. Like, so we've learned that there's some stuff that can go wrong, some unchecked, you know, words that we, I don't like to use, like greed and, you know, just certain things that don't feel good to me. So how do how do we do something better? You know what? Take care of everybody. And everybody who works, they know that whatever they make goes out into the world with a picture of them, a story about them, a story about their community, and a way to get back to them. And then they're part of the profit-sharing system. There's a group fund where 10% of the sale, profits of the sales go back to where they get to vote on what they want to do to improve their community, not someone telling them what they need. They get to vote. And what's important to them? What's going to make their life better? Is it a school? Or is it clean water? Or like this village in Indonesia, I believe they voted on is a latrine system. It's not fancy, but you know what? (laughs) Having a sanitary place to take care of your business is pretty important and maybe more important than having a school. And maybe that's next, you know? And then the concept is, is if you buy the bag, you're actually making more safety for you, too. Because if we start taking care of everybody, then everybody's going to be taken care of. And we're going to feel good and happy about working and participating, creating, and co-creating with each other. So I am big and idealistic. And um, and my goal is to have this be a brand right up there with Coach or Louis Vuitton or Kate being State and have it be a choice for people who go, you know what, I care. And, and I'm doing something about it. For anyone out there who's looking for a bag, go to kickstarter.com and check out Stitched. And if you can't find it there, remember there's another person who's very stubborn on the end of the line, and that's DJ Grandpa. And you'll find all the links you need at djgrandpa.com, the limited edition handbag collection by Whitney Riley. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our Director of Marketing, and to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our Assistant Editors. Until next week... So say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus. Thank <laughs> you.